Over the summer, Sublation Media went to New York. While we were there, I sat down with Canadian trucker Gord McGill and talked about his involvement with the Freedom Convoy, the increasing role of surveillance in everyday life, and whether it's optimistic to imagine that the future is a boot stamping on a human face forever. Note that my microphone experienced some connection issues, but I think my audio is just about listenable nonetheless. I hope you enjoy. How I came across you, as most people would have done, was from the trucker convoy. And uh, I think people think that's not passe. It doesn't matter anymore. But what do you think is the legacy of those protests, if any? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I took part in the Freedom Convoy, and to your great credit, as an honest lefty, you wanted to investigate beyond what was being um, discussed in the regular media. I'm Jillian Findlay on this edition of The Fifth Estate. Our nation's capital, besieged. I'm staying. I'm not leaving until the mandates are gone. Occupying streets, harassing people, breaking the law. This is not a peaceful protest. But who was going to end it? If the police have a strategy, it sure as heck isn't obvious to us. Police seemed helpless. Take me down, asshole! At times, even complicit. I support you guys 100%. Thank you. In terms of public safety response, in terms of intelligence, it's a failure of uh, monumental proportion. It's a mess. As the demonstrators garnered support around the country and the world. We want those great Canadian truckers to know that we are with them all the way. What became clear is that these were no ordinary protests. This extremist movement is born in Canada, raised in Canada, and has proliferated in Canada. Guys, here we are, downtown Ottawa. Holy! The organizers, not simply the COVID-weary Canadians they claim to be. As my friend Erwin Kotler said on Saturday, freedom of expression, assembly, and association are cornerstones of democracy, but Nazi symbolism, racist imagery, and desecration of war memorials are not. It is an insult to memory and truth. Hate can never be the answer. Like the, 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 the Canadian media for two weeks now, they just keep saying that we're like some right-wing fringe minority. Trudeau has said this himself. Uh, Jagmeet Singh, the leader of the NDP, which is sort of like Canada's socialist party, he keeps saying, oh, we're all full of racists. But like they're basing all of this on one guy with a swastika flag who was glowing so hard you could see him from Pluto. We have here in the chamber today Ukrainian Canadians, Ukrainian Canadian world veteran from the Second World War who fought the Ukrainian independence against the Russians, against the Russians, against the Russians, and continues to support the troops today, even at his age of 98.
I find it incredible that um, much like during the convoy, most of the interest in it has come from outside of Canada. Um, there's a lot of interest in it here in the United States. And there was a number of, I wouldn't say copycat, but like inspired protests around the world. Um, some have said, you know, that the Dutch farmers are an analog to the Freedom Convoy. And, you know, the sort of worldwide skepticism and perhaps rejection of this sort of like uh, technocratic rule that many people in the West are living under. And so, you know, the, the echoes of the Freedom Convoy are probably still bouncing around in that. Um, there's still a situation going on in Canada with these gentlemen who are arrested in Coots, Alberta, and are being kept essentially as political prisoners to uh, re reinforce whatever shred of legitimacy uh, Justin Trudeau had in invoking the Emergencies Act, and that still hasn't completely played out. As you heard on Bridge City News, the three-week trial of four men charged with a conspiracy to commit murder during the Coots border blockade last year began on Monday. Anthony Olianek, Chris Carbert, Chris Lysak, and Jerry Morin were arrested in February of 2022 after police seized guns, ammunition, and body armor. Olianek faces an additional charge of making or possessing an explosive device. Meet the four men being held as political prisoners in Canada. Newsweek. October 3rd, 2023, by Gord McGill. The evidence against the Coots 4, as it's been reported in the Canadian media, is thin at best. The Crown alleged that Carbert and Lysak both had ties to Mackenzie's group Diagalon, which planned to replace the Canadian government with a racist, ethno-nationalist state. But according to those close to the men, Carbert and Lysak's ties amounted to listening to Mackenzie's podcast, and Lysak met him just once at a barbecue. Moreover, the podcast isn't racist, nor is Diagalon even real. It's a mix of comedy and criticism of government overreach. The government argued that Olianik was violent because he said he will die fighting for what I believe is right, but many people feel that way about protecting their civil liberties. The government also argued that a picture of a Canadian flag in a saloon in Coots that Carbert posted to Facebook was proof of the conspiracy. Yet thousands of people attended the rally in Coots, many of whom signed the flag. Undercover police officers at the Coots protest alleged that Olianik and Carbert discussed the delivery of a heavy package, which officers said contained guns. But according to an application the RCMP filed for a search warrant, the men were discussing hockey equipment, an electric guitar, and toy trucks for the many kids at the protest, which the RCMP deemed was code for weapons. Police later found firearms. 36,000 rounds of ammunition, and industrial explosives at Olianik's home. But according to friends and family, the guns were legally obtained. The ammunition is the kind commonly used in rural Alberta to shoot gophers, and Olianik's property sits on a gravel mine. He and his father use the explosives to mine gravel. And of course, there's the fact that the charges against Mackenzie, the alleged mastermind of the operation, were completely unrelated to Coots or the trucker's convoy and most have been dropped. Yet despite the thinness of the evidence against them, the Canadian media and the Canadian people seem content to believe the worst of these men, who have been taken from their families for over 19 months. How did this happen in Canada? Documents obtained under the Canadian equivalent of an FOIA request show that the idea that the Coots 4 were involved in Diagalon 
and the idea that Diagalon isn't a comedy podcast but a violent extremist group originated with a non-profit group called the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. The Diagalon threat drummed up by the non-profit went a long way toward justifying Trudeau's invocation of the Emergency Measures Act. A lot hangs on the Crown being able to prove that the Coots Four were engaged in a plot whose threat justified suspending the civil liberties of a Western democracy. This is why those who support the men believe they are being held without bail on trumped-up charges. To release the coups for would be to admit not just to the fact that Canada imprisoned men unjustly and denied them bail, but to call into question Trudeau's every action since the beginning of the Freedom Convoy. Unfortunately, Canada's media have been shamefully silent on the coups for. Happy to report on the initial arrest and repeat the spurious allegations of the RCMP and the Crown, they have failed to ask deeper, fundamental questions about how this situation flies in the face of the rule of law and the presumption of innocence, or why in a country where it feels like almost everyone is granted bail, these men have been denied it. The Coots Four are aware of the wider context which informs why they are being treated the way they are. They know they are political prisoners, the result of today's so-called progressive regime's inability to deal with opposition to their programs and the Western world's refusal to address the complaints voiced by populist movements like Brexit or the Yellow Vests. Comments These people got exactly what they deserved and if anything got off light. They made people's lives miserable for months because they were salty over a vaccine that no one was forced to take. Trudeau is not a great leader by any stretch, but he was absolutely right to do what he did. 36,000 rounds of ammo for gophers? Heck, Canada must have a lot of gophers. Um, some of the people in Ottawa who were the faces of the convoy are still facing, you know, some spurious charges about counselling mischief, but you would think something like counselling mischief would be not that serious, but in Canada it carries the possibility of 10 years in prison. So, you know, um, Trudeau is still trying to punish everybody involved. And um, so, I mean, it, it might not be in the headlines, but it's still being felt. What do you think is the attitude that sort of the general public has in Canada? Is it still, I know, like, you know, I had family members that were there. And so as soon as I saw people were saying, oh, there's a whole bunch of Nazis. I was like, well, oh, you know, my family, the in, they're indigenous. I know they didn't just suddenly become self-hating indigenous people to go, you know, pick up some swastika. So I immediately kind of knew that something weird was happening. But it really split Canada. I like, it, I have a very close family and there was like, Falling, falling out between like parents. Yeah, and mine as well. And it, the 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 splitting was part of the reason the Freedom Convoy came to be what it was because it wasn't necessarily about the truckers. I mean, the truckers took action because they were being abused at the border because the COVID regime um, gave incentive to the petty authoritarian. To anybody with a uniform that worked for the government including people at the border and truckers were dealing with everybody at the border but the covid regime itself had already done this had already split families apart on the question of vaccines and masking and you know and like trudeau literally imposed a regime of medical apartheid like if you did not have a vaccination card you could not get on an airplane in canada you couldn't take a bus you couldn't do all this stuff you know and and people want to say well that's now, you, you could still walk or you could drive. Okay, cool. So if you are a, an Inuit person in the Northwest Territories or somewhere in the high Arctic that requires specialty medical treatment at a hospital in Toronto, that requires getting on an airplane and flying many thousands of miles 
um, you know, if you don't have a vaccine or you chose not to take it, you're out of luck. Oh, yeah, you but know, people so like, were fine with that. They were like, well, that, you deserve that because you made that choice. And you're seeing this happen with a lot of things where they're like, well, you didn't die, did you? You know, or like you're a threat to other people. It's not it's not that bad as long as the as long as you didn't die, you know. Um, you know, you can still live. You don't have to go to restaurants. You don't have to get on a plane. You don't have to have medical care, apparently. It, just, it, it was like, it was no punishment was enough for people who refused to fall in line for the greater good of health. There's just nothing beyond health that could, that anyone could imagine of value. Well, that's an interesting point because, you know, much of the Canadian identity is centered around the fact that we have social medicine and, a, you know, the government looks after you and, you know, how Canada relates to the world, specifically to its neighbor here in the United States, is constantly referencing the fact that the United States doesn't have universal health care. And it becomes this, like, sort of unspoken, uncriticized, undiscussed um, pillar of the sort of Canadian psyche. So it's it's kind of ironic that, you know, everything gets reduced to health. And then, like, if you chose to manage your own health, then like too bad for you. Like the, the whole thing was just a mess. And I mean, that's, you know, th this is the breach into which the Freedom Convoy stepped because, you know, they just said enough is enough. Is there a value greater than health for you? I mean, you can have all the health in the world, but if you can't make any choices and you can't live life the way you want, who cares? You got to have some freedom. I know that's one of the things that I said during the pandemic was like, you know, animals in captivity live a lot longer than animals in the wild. Nobody looks at them and says, wow, a great life. You know, you feel bad for them because they yeah. don't have any freedom. I think we're kind of losing this idea of, you know, there, there's different values attached to the body that tend to be sort of located within particular social classes. And the higher up in social class you go, the more the body becomes centralized. My body is a temple. And it becomes, the body becomes a project, a purpose in life. You, instead of going to church on Sundays, you and prostrate yourself before God, and you like go and do yoga, you know, and it becomes this huge project. And the further down in class you go, the body is a vehicle that takes you where you need to go. It's it's something that is um, a tool that you use for something beyond yourself. And I know maybe I'm making too much of it as being a class thing, but there are definitely different tensions and, and uh, around ideals of health. And one of the things with the convoy was that there was. It's, it was like, no, my self-determination was a higher value. And my ability for my body to take me somewhere is being you know, stopped. Do you, do you kind of feel that? Right, yeah. I mean, because your body literally was. You, you, again, I'll get back to the medical apartheid. You could not transport your body on federally regulated public transit if you did not show a vaccination card. And then they tried to attack the truckers by saying, you know, if you go to the United States without having taken, you know, this experimental gene therapy, you now have to do 14 days of quarantine. And if you're someone that crosses the border every day or a couple of times a week, that basically eliminates your, your livelihood. And, you know, the, the question of bodily autonomy, a lot of non sequiturs came up with critics of the Freedom Convoy. Oh, you people probably don't support a woman's right to choose and like without ever actually asking anybody, it's like this imported, another problem in the Canadian media and the Canadian psyche, and you know, getting back to what I said previously about social healthcare is importing the pathologies of the United States to Canada because like 
we're pretty damn boring, right? And um, infantile thinking would be like a good way to describe how much of the Canadian media intelligentsia rule. So they had to import this like American discussion about abortion rights as a way to try and like deflect from the fact that they had just taken your right to your own bodily autonomy away from you, right? It was, it was a big distraction method and like a total non sequitur, but that was like the answer you got anytime you tried to engage anybody with it. Like, what aboutery? Yeah, what aboutery? And like, at the end of the day, bodily autonomy is bodily autonomy, and you would have thought these folks would have been on our side, but again, the ginned up moral panic around everything basically fried everybody's brains and like removed consistency, logic, reason, all that stuff. Obviously, the comeback to that is that you can't have freedom if you're a risk to other people. And I think part of that was this sense. But there was never a risk to other people, and that's what they don't want to acknowledge. What do you mean? Well, the vaccines didn't prevent transmission. Everybody was a risk. I mean, if, if, you, if you want to come down to it, everybody was a risk and there was no getting away from that. So it comes down to like you being able to manage your own risk, which they wanted to take away from you, your right to manage your own risk. Yeah, there's a sense that without the sort of intervention of an expert class or a technocratic government of some sort, the people are just sort of hapless. And this was something that went into the algorithms that they used to try to, or not the algorithms, this is something that went into the modeling that they used to make sense of the, the you know, the pandemic response and what would happen if, if this happened, if, you know, if governments don't intervene, hundreds of thousands of people are going to die. The assumption was if governments didn't intervene, people don't manage their own risks. Um, so there's this built in assumption of kind of human stupidity and the inability to have any kind of autonomy. Um, and it strikes me that if you don't have a belief in a human subject of as capable of self-managing, I mean, really, without intervention from on high, um, then you don't have a subject capable of controlling history. And the fact that, which is fine, right? But the fact that the left embraced that struck me as very troubling. Because how can you have a forward-looking movement for freedom if you don't believe in a human subject capable of directing it? And I wondered, who do you think is, the, the subject, the, the subject in society capable of making history? Is it, is it governments? Is it people who are educated? Is it the working class? Is it an educated working class? In part two, we talk about the sneaking surveillance of everyday life and whether the future is really a boot stamping on a face forever. Maybe that's a bit too optimistic. You also get a sneak peek at a new documentary. Visit patreon.com slash Ashley A. Frawley.